Good morning to all of you. My name is Emily DeYoung, and I have been in the counseling field for 23 years, I believe. It gets longer every year, so here we are. Um, but I just wanted to mention this morning, on a side note, um, thank you for coming to our seminar. I love the people in this room. And, and you might think, well, that's kind of over-exaggerated. However, I have two kids who recently, my youngest graduated from high school, and they have gone through Christian schools from K through 12. And so now they're in college. And my youngest started college, and she said, Mom, like academically, I'm cool. Like, this is good. I'm well prepared. But I thought to myself, you know what? Academically, you could have gotten that anywhere. However, the one thing as a mom that I love about you guys is that over the last 13 years, my son's older than that, so 15 years, you have spoken life, truth, hope, meaning into the lives of my kids. And you guys, they now have this identity that they believe they are a son and daughter in the kingdom of the King of Kings. That's awesome! As a mom, if you want to bless me, bless my kids, and there is no greater blessing. So I am not understating the fact that you guys have blessed me immensely, and I love you all. So for the last 23 years, um, I've been counseling, and I've been working with kids, usually between the ages of 3 and 25, and throughout the, that time, we have seen a variety of issues, but my specialty area is in anxiety. So I am thrilled to come and talk to you about that today. Is the volume okay? Can you hear me? Okay, then I'd rather not use the mic if I don't have to. And today I have brought with me one of my colleagues from Winning at Home in Zealand, Michigan. Yes, my name is Chase Hookwater. I am also an adolescent child therapist at Winning at Home. I've been there for about four and a half years now. I've been counseling for six. Um, my age range is a little smaller than Emily's. I go from about six years old all the way up to about 21. Um, and anxiety, depression, grief are kind of the main focuses. Um, but definitely anxiety is a very popular one right now. It's probably 60 to 70% of my case though. So I think it's great that there's this great turnout um, to see how we can better help students at the school. Um, so thanks for being here. Yes, and I would echo that. In fact, I would say to you that we are not teachers, we're counselors. So typically we spend a lot of our time one-on-one -on -one or in a small family setting, so one-on-four. And that the energy that it takes to do that is immense. So when I think about you guys doing work in your classroom, like 1 to 25, I'm like, oh my word, you guys are rock stars. <laughs> so thank you for all the ways that you invest in our kids. We love it. And our goal is today to help you find ways to better connect with students who experience fear or anxiety in your classroom. In fact, I would say to you that anxiety has become the most prevalent mental health issue in our world today. And I say that confidently because as Chase said, 60 to 70% of the kids he works with struggle with anxiety, and I would echo that. I'm probably closer to 70 or 80% of the kids that I see are there because of fear and anxiety. So it's huge, and we know that our kids are in your classrooms as well. So we hope that something we offer to you today will be practical enough for you to take back to your classroom next week. 
So let's start with, what, is the, what does fear really look like? How many of you have seen the movie Inside Out? Yes! So I have some Inside Out fans in the room. Uh, by the way, how many of you are like K through 2 teachers? Okay. How about like 3 through 5? Okay. Middle school? Wow, okay. And then anyone from high school? Wow, we have a great mix. We will do our best to offer you different developmental ideas that are appropriate for your age groups. But feel free at any time to ask us to force suggestions of how to modify some of these skills. But let's take a look for a moment on the difference between fear and anxiety. So if you've seen the movie Inside Out, you've also <laughs> understand that the movie, the way the movie is set up is there's this little girl navigating life and the characters are based on the emotions that are inside of her head. So let's see what fear, whoops, what fear looks like in the life of Riley. Easy, easy, huh? Hi back! Oh, we're good. Woo! I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we're back. Did you hear Dad? He's very nice. Okay, looks like you got this. Very good. Well, that's right, turn potential disasters, worst scenario is either quicksand, spontaneous combustion, or getting called on by the teacher. So as long as none of those happens... Okay, everybody, we have a new student in class today. Are you kidding me? Out of the gates, this is not happening! Riley, would you like to tell us something about yourself? No! Pretend we can't speak English! Don't worry. Is that familiar to anyone? She might look pretty calm on the outside. But on the inside, her head is screaming with all kinds of different thoughts and feelings. But there is a difference between fear and anxiety. And you might be wondering, well, what's the difference between fear and anxiety? First of all, remember that fear is a healthy emotion. It's an emotion that God gave us to help us discern some of our behaviors. So if I'm standing on the top of a playground slide, my fear kicks in and says, hey, you probably shouldn't jump off there. That's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. It helps us navigate life. But the alternative to that is when we have anxiety, those fears become excessive or irrational. And many times, there's an absence of an actual threat. So there might be a perception of threat, but there's not an actual threat. But the feeling for kids with anxiety is the same. So for instance, for me, I'm not a fan of spiders. But if you told me there was a tarantula on my shoulder right now, I would have a very, very strong fear response. You might as well. But for kids, walking into a classroom might provoke the same fear response as you might have with a tarantula on your shoulder. It's an important thing to remember. Anxiety affects between 9 and 13% of the kids in our classroom between grades K and 12 at any given time. So if you imagine your classroom right now, in a pretty standard-like classroom, there's probably two kids in your classroom that struggle pretty significantly with anxious thoughts and feelings. So what is the impact? We're going to look at three different areas. What is the impact of anxiety on your thoughts, on your feelings, and on your behaviors? Those three critical areas of functioning. So if you think about how does how does excessive worry or how does incessant worry affect your thoughts? Most often, these are what-if questions. 
What if this? What if that? And it's incessant. It's racing through minds. So if you think about dividing those into categories, there are tons of social fears for kids that look a lot of different ways. Will my friends like me? Will I have someone to sit with at lunch? What if no one really cares about me? What if I can't find a friend at school? What if all of my friends reject me? Those are social fears. And then there are psychological fears. Lots of what if questions around that. What if I'm not normal? What if I'm going crazy? That's very prevalent. Physical fears. These are all oftentimes the kids who use hand sanitizer a hundred times a day. Their fears might be things like, what if I get sick? Or believe it or not, one of the most common fears for kids is vomiting in your classroom. You've seen this, right? Yeah, they have this perpetual fear of getting sick. Or spiritual fears. A lot of kids fear things like, what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not going to heaven? Does God really love me? And there's a lot of fear surrounding that. Rumination is a clinical word that we use that just means thinking about the same thing over and over and over again. So for thoughts, this might mean that instead of just thinking, well, what if my friends don't care about me? It's, it's repeated about 100,000 times on the recorder in a student's mind. So you can know, as a teacher, that makes it really difficult for kids to stay engaged learning, right? Because their minds are so focused on what's going on with friends, what's going on with family, am I going to get sick, does God really love me, that they really can't focus on the curriculum that you're trying to share with them. Finally, brain function. This is super important, and many of you could probably teach this, but remember, the prefrontal cortex is where all of the thinking and problem solving, a lot of your cognitive executive functions occur. And that's the place where engaged learning happens. This is what we want to be online for our students in the classroom. Now the amygdala is that little, you guys probably can't see this very well, but I'm going to see if I can use my pointer. Right there, the little amygdala in this brain is responsible for detecting threat. So when it's working well, when it's doing its job, it's helping students make good decisions. But for kids with anxiety, their amygdala is literally gone haywire. So it's like a smoke detector going off all of the time in their brains, perceiving threats that aren't really there. And if you can imagine that, imagine the smoke detector going off all the time. You're hypervigilant, you're aroused. And when that happens, they can't be engaged learners. So when, and for kids, I use the language feelings brain, thinking brain. It's just easier for them. So the amygdala is the feeling brain. Prefrontal cortex is the thinking brain. When the feelings brain is supercharged, the thinking brain shuts off. It goes offline. So if a child is experiencing high anxiety, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are not going to be an engaged learner. Now the encouraging part about this is how many of you guys saw the movie Free Solo? Did you see that? Oh, a few. Yeah, a few fans. Good. So in this movie, there's a guy named Alex Honnold. And my family happens to be a family of climbers. Not me, but the rest of my family happens to be rock climbers. So they have been fans of Alex Honnold for years. Alex Honnold is a guy that will go to a very, very steep rock face and climb it without a rope. 
And I kept asking myself, like, how does he do that? Or why does he do that? Well, the interesting thing is, his movie came out called Free Solo, where he went to Yosemite National Park in California. He climbed El Capitan, one of the most infamous walls you can climb for rock climbers. It scaled over 2,000 feet. Guys, it's huge. He did this without a rope. Incredible, right? Well, you think, okay, Alex, we lost our technology. Nope, we're good. How do you do that? Well, it was interesting in the movie, they talked about doing brain scans for him, and fMRIs showed for Alex Honnold that his amygdala was almost completely inactive. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> How does this happen? But he has climbed so many rock faces over the course of his life that it no longer generates fear for him. What does that mean for us? First of all, lots of hope. Kids who have activated amygdalas can learn to diffuse that fear response. And that's why I keep doing what I'm doing, because I want them to be engaged learners in your classroom. And through gradual exposures, we can help them do that. The difference is, if you would have told Alex Honnold six years ago, hey, we want you to go climb El Cap, he would have said, uh-uh, no way. It took a long time of preparation for him to get to the point where he felt comfortable doing it. And the same thing is true for students in our classrooms. We need to let them learn gradually how to manage those strong fears. Okay, how does fear impact feelings? Strong physical reactions. Heart rate increases, senses awaken, adrenaline rush. A lot of kids come to our offices complaining of headaches or stomach pain, probably the most common physical complaint. Um, sometimes they lose bowel or bladder control, or sometimes they even get to the point where they're vomiting because they have such strong physical reactions to their feelings. The emotions, the feeling words that I would use would be terror, dread, Fear. That's what they're experiencing. What does that look like in terms of behavior? What does that look like in your classroom? Well, it might be hard to notice. Because even with Riley on our little clip, you may have noticed that on the outside she looked fine. It was on the inside where she was experiencing so much difficulty. So you might see withdrawal. Some students with anxiety are desperate to avoid attention. Please don't notice me when I walk inside a classroom. It would be devastating. And honestly, in third grade, that was me. Third grade, I remember going to my, I remember going to my classroom, third grade, so probably eight years old, sitting at my desk, and I was, I was that student who did not want attention. So I'm sitting at my desk, and I had to go to the bathroom so bad. It was starting to be painful. So I would do the little dance and cross my legs and start getting really uncomfortable. Finally, I knew that if I couldn't ask my teacher, I would have a problem, probably an accident in my seat, which would have been even more devastating. So I remember walking up to my teacher, Mrs. DeYoung, same, same last name as I have now, but I said to her, Mrs. DeYoung, I really have to go to the bathroom. And she said, Emily, go, no big deal. So I went to the bathroom, and about three seconds later, she came in after me and said, are you okay? <laughs> so clearly I had been in a lot of distress, 
And it was such a simple thing. <coughs> but there are lots of kids who just don't want to be the center of attention. Perfectionism, the model student. Students that perform excessively well in your classroom might also be the ones that are struggling the most with what us. What if I fail? What if I don't make it into college? And that scales all the way to, what if I live in a van down by the river? It escalates that far. Sometimes you'll see aggression. A lot of times, aggression is a mask for fear. We talk about anger being a secondary emotion or a cover-up emotion. A lot of times it's covering up fear for students. The fear of having to do something embarrassing. The fear of having to stand at the whiteboard in your classroom and answer questions they don't know how to answer. So you might get a response from them like, I'm not doing that. I'll take you out before I do that. <laughs> and finally, these are students that can be very noisy, asking lots and lots and lots of questions, looking for reassurance. When are we going to go to gym? When are we going to have lunch? All of those things that they need structure for in order to settle some of the fears in their mind. Thanks, Sam. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about something different than talking about what anxiety is, because Emily covered that pretty well, and I was thinking of what would be helpful for students I see in my office for their teachers to know. Um, and so I came up with just a couple things that I'll call common myths and misconceptions about anxiety. Um, some of these are going to be pretty common sense. Um, some of them might be new to you guys, but these are just what I'm hearing from a lot of students when they come in to see me. Um, I just found this funny comic actually was sent to me from a high schooler that comes and sees me. It says, this explains how I feel about anxiety perfectly. Um, so you have this person, which you, you know, they assume is God, um, who says, this person is almost done. Just need a pinch more of anxiety for fun. Lid comes off and just showers them. And he says, a lot of times, a lot of times they'll ask me, did God make me this way? And I'm not going to dive too deep into that. I'm not a theologian or anything like that. But sometimes they wonder, you know, did God, did I just, did God make me with all this anxiety? Um, or did I learn this? Um, so I just, I found that funny. So I was going to start with that. Um, myth number one, uh, I think the best way to explain it, this is the stop it or get over, get over it technique. Um, and I think this video will explain it a lot better than me. So Emily, if you can hit play on that. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has has, has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No, no. But truly, thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. <laughs> what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes, yes, that's it. <laughs> All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Shall I uh, write them down? Well, if, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most you find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. You're, you're there. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! Yes. S T O P. <laughs> 
you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, 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 you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that sounds freak. Then <laughs> stop it. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, no, childhood. No, 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 we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. <laughs> so I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. <laughs> okay, so as we watch that, obviously it seems ridiculous and it's common sense that the stop it approach doesn't work. Um, but I was just thinking on my way down here, um, two hour drive up from, from Michigan, how often I was telling myself that with my own anxiety about presenting is stop it, stop it. It didn't work. Uh, but I think often, even in my office, when they first come up with some ridiculous anxiety, my first reaction is, well, just stop that. But it doesn't work. As Emily kind of explained, when we hit that point, part of the brain that's the amygdala, something like common sense, the frontal cortex, shuts down, and all we can think about is our fear. It's the fight or flight um, or freeze mode of the brain. Um, but oftentimes, our first reaction when we hear somebody who has anxiety, or if we have it ourselves, is just stop it. Um, it's not helpful, uh, especially when we're in that, that mode of thinking, actually, it can make it worse. So, um, first myth is the stop it or get over technique will not work on kids. Um, the second myth is anxiety is the same for everyone, and Emily also touched base on this a little bit, um, but to be honest, nearly 100% of students experience anxiety. Um, 100% of people experience anxiety in some form or another, unless that part of the amygdala is just super unactive, which is probably not safe, like the, the rock climber there. But only about 13%, actually I'm probably thinking it's a little higher than that now, um, of students have anxiety levels that would qualify as an anxiety disorder. Um, so that would be yeah, about two, maybe three kids per classroom, depending on the size of the classroom. Um, and then an anxiety disorder is an excessive or unrealistic um, anxiety that persists for longer than six months. Um, so the way I like to kind of look at it as um, we all have anxieties and if a kid can control, at least mostly can control their anxiety, it's probably not an anxiety disorder. When the anxiety starts to control them um, is when it starts to look like a disorder um, where things like therapy and, and things like that would be helpful. So. Um, there's also many different kinds of anxiety. So uh, I put a couple of them on there. Um, a panic disorder is a higher form of anxiety. PSTD can be, uh, PTSD can be a form of it. Academic anxiety is actually an actual anxiety. Um, the most common is the test anxiety, um, which you guys probably see a lot in students. Um, but it can create a gap between a student's ability and their actual performance. Um, and I'm gonna talk about that in the next slide, um, which is another myth is anxiety is always bad. Um, which is not the case. Um, There's actually a cool study that some psychologists did, I forget the year, um, but they did a poll where they, they tested um, anxiety levels in relation to performance on tests. Um, and as you can see, when anxiety is super high, um, performance is super low. But also when there's no anxiety, performance is super low. So there's this, there's this middle medium balance of anxiety that performed the best in test scores and, and papers and things like that. Um, and I will show this to a lot of my students that are on one side or my clients that are on one side or the other of, of saying, well, anxiety's not bad. You're just way too high right now or you don't have any right now. Um, and trying to bring them to that comfortable level of anxiety where they can perform at the best. Um, so often they'll come in and say, oh, I think anxiety's awful. I'll say, well, what you're feeling right now is awful, but anxiety itself might not be the problem, or at least 
you know, once we find that healthy balance in anxiety. Um, so that was super interesting when I found that. Um, now this one is maybe a little more controversial, um, but I said the myth is anxious children are the result of bad parenting. That is not always the case. Um, you can have anxious kids from great parenting. Um, you can have anxious kids or not anxious kids for not too great parenting. Um, but one thing that is interesting is kids like to model the way that adults in their life handle anxiety. Um, so if parents handle anxiety poorly, you're raising the chances of the child handling anxiety poorly. Um, and as teachers, we can't necessarily control how parents are handling anxiety, but we can control how we handle anxiety in the classroom. Because they are watching and they will mirror at least some of the reactions. Um, so if we can be an example to the students of how to handle anxiety in the classroom, we're giving them a higher chance of doing it successfully on their own, if not now, at least in the future. Um, so that is another, I would say, myth. Um, but there are some caveats in there in terms of parenting. Um, now Emily and I are going to go through just, we came up with together five um, practical, easy, quick tools that we can teach today that can be helpful in the classroom. Um, and we'll just kind of take turns on those. I'll start and give one tool, um, and then Emily will go into hers, and we'll go back and forth until we get to the activity session. Yeah. Sounds good. The one thing I would add, based on the comment about how we handle anxiety in the classroom can help students because through co-regulation, they're learning how to manage their feelings through the way that we manage our feelings. So we do that all the time in the context of therapy, but in the classroom, you can do the same thing. And in Zealand, I remember the first day of school in Zealand at Zealand Christian School, the very first day, there was a lockdown. And so I don't see any Zealand Christian School teachers in here, but um, but that very first day there was a lockdown because there was a stolen car in the, in the vicinity so the police had called the school and said we're locking all the schools down and and as they did that I will tell you our phone started being like crazy because all of a sudden kids that were a little bit anxiety prone already on the first day of school went into this utter panic. The really cool thing that happened though is I, I started to talk with students they said yeah you know what and my teacher didn't think it was that big of a deal. My teacher just kept on, she closed the door, followed the lockdown drill, but just kept on working. And that type of model for kids was really effective. When you can manage that anxiety well, you're also helping your kids manage anxiety really well. So that was just a thought that I had as you were presenting. Perfect, thank you. But on the website, the CEA website, there's a handout called Classroom Suggestions for Managing Anxiety. We do have copies, so you're welcome to grab one if you would like. We are not planning to cover the material in this handout. We would rather create some experiential learning exercises for you guys today. But you may gladly look through this, and if you have questions about it, feel free to email us. We would love to connect with you to help you manage different situations in your classroom. You want me to take over? All right. So. Top five tools for teachers that we came up with. Um, I'll take the first one, that's uh, the breathing exercise, which um, just some personal things on that. I remember growing up and, and I was a pretty anxious kid too, um, that whenever I would feel anxious about something, whether it be a test or a sporting event or something like that, my dad would really say, take a deep breath. And I remember 
especially as a teenager, just thinking, well, come on, that's like super insensitive. Like, give me something better than that. Um, I thought it was just kind of a passive comment. Um, but as I got older and started researching more about how deep breathing actually influences the brain, uh, I found it fascinating. Actually, I put a, a Bible verse up there, Psalm 139, 14, which talks about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, and when I researched the effect of breathing on the brain, that verse just popped up to me. I thought the way God created us was so cool. So um, I've read a couple articles. I don't know if I'd go as far as to say this is how I feel, but a lot of articles will say breathing is the remote control of the brain. Um, that depending on how we breathe, we can decide what part of the brain we're going to use, whether it's the amygdala, whether it's the frontal cortex. Um, and the reasons for that is by deep breathing, and I will, we'll all do it together just quickly. It might look weird or feel weird, but we're going to try it. By deep breathing, we can actually raise the endorphin levels in the brain, and it can actually calm us. So when we see, when we feel, or we see other kids who go into that amygdala fight or flight where they can't think common sense, Sometimes just by regulating the breathing, we can get them back into the frontal cortex by raising the endorphin levels and calming them a little bit. So what I, I call the 555 rule. Now, that works the best with middle school and high schoolers because they're bigger, they have bigger lungs. When I'm working with younger kids, I usually call it the 444 rule because it's four seconds per stage of breathing. Um, so it's going to depend on the age of your kids. But um, each number stands for a part of the breathing. So the first five is breathing in. The second five is holding your breath and the third five is breathing out. And now it also depends on how we breathe. I always say I like to breathe in through the nose, hold, and then out through the mouth for five seconds. And it's not just a, it's more of like through a straw, just a calm. Um, and when I do this with kids in my office, they're usually pretty surprised at how they feel after two or three times going through this. Of wow, I, I was nervous to see you today, and now I'm relaxed, and I'm ready to talk about things. So um, we're just going to practice it now, maybe go through it. Um, three times. Um, we'll go through the 555 together. I'll, I'll lead it. Um, but I want to focus on how we breathe. Uh, often I, I see kids where their chest raises up right away and actually we want to breathe from the diaphragm. That's where we get the deep breathing, the endorphins. Actually, it's kind of cool how God made us too. There's these pockets of, uh, of serotonin um, just outside of the, the uh, diaphragm that when we push, when we breathe, breathe deeply, it enters into our bloodstream, into our brain. So actually, I'm, I've done, you know, frontal talking to trying yoga or something in high school. I'm like, oh, this feels good, but I don't like, why am I, you know, bending my body and things like that. But I feel good afterwards. Why is that? Well, I realize it's actually the deep breathing that's making me feel good. And it's because I'm, I'm releasing those endorphins, which is pretty good. So we'll try that a second here. I, I call it the 555 rule. So just get comfortable in your seats. Um, Can I add one thing? Yeah. You talked about middle school and high school. For younger kids, sometimes we like to add pictures to that deep breathing. So it can look like smell the roses, blow out the candle. That's one way to do it. Or I call it bubble breathing. So I actually have bubbles. We can experiment with those a little bit later. But I have bubbles in my office so that they can get used to the deep inhale and the long exhale. But smell the roses, blow out the candle. It gives them a picture. It's a little bit different than, it's the same technique, but a little bit different picture for younger kids. Yes, which is good because you work with younger kids a lot more than me, so I don't use the creative side as much. Uh, but it works for all ages, so that's great, even adults. Um, so just a couple times, count in your head. We'll breathe in, we'll hold and breathe out. We'll do it two or three times through. So, um, all right. So it feels a little weird and, and, and standing in front of people, but 
obviously when I have that happen with my students at first or the clients in my office, they're a little nervous, like this is awkward, and then afterwards I ask them how do you feel, I'm like, really relaxed, that was great. Um, so it's a tool, especially in the moment when you see them starting to sweat or, or get worked up, if we can calm their breathing, sometimes we can flip them out of the amygdala back into the, the frontal cortex and they can think with more common sense through a difficult situation. The next tool that we love to use with kids is progressive muscle relaxation. And as we're incorporating the deep breathing, we like to show them the difference between a tense body and a relaxed body. So the goal is to help them identify areas of their body where they may even be experiencing pain. For kids that have, like, come in with headaches or tummy aches, I tell them, boy, let's, let's do some, I usually say spaghetti noodles are robots and ragdolls, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But as they contract that muscle, and they make it really, really tight, and then learn how to relax it, they can alleviate some of the pain that they're experiencing because of anxiety. So there's a lot of different ways to do that. And for them, they can picture what spaghetti looks like before it's boiled. They often will say, oh yeah, I know what, it comes out of a box, it's really rigid, and we can break it really easily. And that's what your body looks like when it's really tense. It's rigid and even breakable. But if we can learn how to get our spaghetti noodles, boil, then we can make our bodies nice and loose and flexible, and it helps us to relax. So we practice that. And it usually starts, I usually start with the hands. So we go up to the hands and we say, let's make those um, really, really bright, rigid spaghetti noodles. And we close our hands, squeeze for 10 or five seconds, squeeze really, really, really hard, and then relax. And squeeze really, really, really hard. And relax. We do this a little bit slower when we're doing the actual technique. But then we move to the core of our body. So then I'll say to them, show me your guns. Let's flex our biceps or flex our forearms. Let's do that for five seconds. One, two, three, four, five. And then relax. And then take a deep breath. For sake of time, I'm not going to have you experiment with that one right now. But I'm going to let Chase go to the next one. Okay. So this one's going to get a little more complicated. This is a lot of what we do in counseling, especially if you're a CBT counselor, which I am, which stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, which works really well with anxiety because it's giving kids control of their thoughts instead of letting their thoughts control them. Um, so this approach is called thought replacement. Um, so we're taking those anxious or negative thoughts or even depressed thoughts, depending on what they're coming in for, um, and replacing them with more positive, um, life-giving, spiritual thoughts even. Um, so, um, one of my best ways to explain it to the students and, and explain it to the teachers too is, uh, I call it the snowball effect. So, studies are showing that a thought takes one minute to become permanent in somebody's brain. So, if you're thinking a kid's taking the class, maybe <coughs> memorize some things for a test, if they think about it, just that, that answer to a question for a minute, it should be in there. Now, that doesn't mean it's lost in the subconscious and they're sitting here during a test and saying, oh, I knew this one, I'm forgetting it. It's still there, we just can't bring it back out. It takes one minute for a thought to become permanent is what the studies are showing. That being said, thoughts about ourselves or thoughts about fears take about one minute to become permanent in the brain too. Now often, when we're fearful, so take my example of my drive down here again when I'm nervous about presenting, I'm not thinking about it for one minute. I'm thinking about it for, well, two hours straight. Actually, I've been thinking about it for a month or so. Um, so it's not just a one-minute anxious thought. It is a repeated thought over and over again um, to the point where it snowballs. And this, this is a great picture of it. 
Because when a thought first enters our brain, it's something small. We actually can control it. But as it rolls down that hill, it gets bigger and bigger, where it says right here, the no going back point, where up here, maybe I control my thoughts. Right here, my thoughts are controlling me. Um, and, and this is where we often see kids who come in with an anxiety disorder, because they feel like this snowball is now crushing them. Um, instead of being at the top of the hill where they can still control it. So that's the first thing that's important to remember. It's the rumination where it grows and grows and grows until the point where it feels overwhelming. So we're trying to replace these, these negative thoughts that usually happen on a snowball effect. Um, and the first thing is to call out these negative thoughts. And it doesn't change overnight, but to help students realize, hey, I understand these thoughts, but it's not helping you. I, I like to call them garbage thoughts. Um, to the kids, and that sounds kind of me, but I say this, this thought isn't doing anything good for you. We need to, you know, crank it up and throw it in the trash um, because it's just weighing you down. It's, it's making things worse, um, which kind of leads into the power of positive thoughts. Um, I call it self-fulfilling prophecy, but studies are also showing that um, how we think we're raising the chance of that outcome actually happening. Um, so, for example, if you're thinking about a basketball player who's shooting free throws, um, and they're at the free throw line, and they're thinking to themselves, I'm going to miss this shot, I'm going to miss this shot, I'm going to miss this shot. Now, there's a chance they make it, but they're actually raising the percent chance of not making it. Well, the true can be said of the opposite of if they go to the line and they're thinking positively, I can make this, I can do this, they might miss, but they are raising the probability of making it. So that's true for the negative thoughts as well. They're thinking negatively about social interactions or about taking a test and things like that. Those are the thoughts that aren't doing them any good because it's raising the chance of something bad happening. Um, so our goal is in CBT is to replace the thoughts with something that are, that's more positive, uh, more confidence building, um, and, and hopefully the pattern of calling themselves up for bad thoughts, replacing with more positive thoughts can help alleviate a ton of anxiety. Um, so I would like to address this one from a developmental perspective as well, because for those of you who teach in grades K through two, that might be an incredibly challenging experience for them because typically kids that are <clears throat> six, seven years old do not yet have the capacity to recognize their own self-talk. It's a pretty sophisticated ability that comes around age eight or nine. And if they're not recognizing their own thoughts and self-talk, then they're really not able to say, okay, I need to replace that negative thought with a more positive alternative. So when we have kids in kindergarten or first grade that we're working with in therapy, a lot of our, our goals look like more like gradual exposures or behavioral techniques rather than some of the cognitive techniques that Chase talked about. Make sense? Okay. Another one of the tools that I absolutely love, and you can do this in your classroom throughout the day, there's regulation through movement. So often, when our anxieties flare up, one of the best ways to regulate that emotion is to move. And studies have shown that rhythmical movement can alleviate that anxiety. So what are some types of things that you can try? For, especially in younger classrooms, you can do exercises with kids where they are going on a bear hunt. It's a great tool to help alleviate anxiety. Or for some of the older students, we train them how to do butterfly hugs where they cross their body with their arms, so they look like a butterfly, and then they begin tapping from side to side. When I do this in my office, I often say to them, show me how quickly the butterfly wings are flapping right at the beginning. And they're like, whoa! They're flapping, they're flooding like crazy. And then we gradually slow them down 
And along with breathing, those butterfly hugs can help students regulate emotion. And then finally, serve in return. One of the, again, like one of my favorite ways when I'm working with kids to help them regulate is to do this process called serve and return. So sometimes we play catch in my office where I'll toss the ball to them, they toss it back. Anything that goes back and forth, think about when during infancy when you're sitting in a rocking chair with a newborn baby, what's one of the best ways that they learn how to regulate? You rock them. And sometimes, I know some of you moms in here know, when you grab a baby, even if it's not your own, you start doing this thing, and you just do it naturally because we know that it helps to regulate emotion. And that movement will inevitably, for kids, help them settle down and bring their thinking brain back online. Back to you. Uh, yes. So the, the number five, uh, the last one that, that I thought of was um, prayer. This is the cool thing that uh, where I feel more connected with, with uh, Christian school teachers at, at Winning at Home because it's something that we actually are required to do at our office, and that's to pray with our clients. Um, so every session I make sure in the last five to ten minutes that I spend time in prayer requests and actually praying with them. Um, and honestly, the feedback from a lot of clients are the thing that's the most anxiety-reducing is the fact that they've got somebody else praying for them. Um, so the one, and it's probably a reminder because you guys do this, often is pray for your students. Um, and make time outside of school to do that, whether it's in the morning before school, um, especially if you know a couple students that are really nervous or struggling with something, pray for them. Um, it's a cool opportunity that you guys have that other schools might not have. Pray with students, so um, what I'm picturing in the back of my head for that is if a student comes and sees you in between class really nervous about a paper or a test, um, ask them, hey, can I pray for you a second? Um, because you can really see, after a prayer, their, their, the tension kind of leave them. Um, and I think that's a cool op opportunity. And the last thing is teach students to pray. Um, you guys are teachers, that's awesome. Let's make sure we're, we're teaching them how to pray themselves. Um, oftentimes when I see in my, my office, I'll pray afterwards. I'm like, oh wow, that felt really good. How, how do you pray? Um, and, and I think it's a cool opportunity you guys have to teach these kids to pray, not just now, but into adulthood. Of, how to pray for others. So I think um, I think that was a tool I wanted to make sure we put in there just because in my own office I see that being a huge um, part of um, releasing the anxiety that they feel in their heart and in their mind. So um, I don't know if you want to add to that. That was awesome. All right, we believe in experiential learning. And when I'm treatment planning with kids, I often try to think about how can we help heal their mind, their body, and their spirit. Because so often anxiety involves all three of those really important parts of who they are. So every time I'm thinking through a student, I always think, let's address these three things in my treatment planning with them. Mind, body, spirit. So we want you guys to practice with us. We want you to experience what it might be like to do some of these relaxation exercises. So we have different stations set up around the room and I think, I know there are a lot of people in here and it might feel congested, but I think it's gonna work. So if it doesn't, we won't ever do it again. <laughs> but let's just bear with us for a moment. We'll try this. Um, so there's a relaxation exercise for body, and that is the serve and return thing that I talked about. So in this corner up here, there's a basket where there's bean bags, there's different balls, and all I want you to do is grab a ball, take a deep breath, and then 
toss it back and forth to the partner. You throw it to them, they throw it to you. There may not be enough balls in there for pairs, so if you have a group of three or four or five, that's fine. Just take a few moments and throw that ball back and forth. And pay attention to how you're feeling. Be mindful about that. The second one we have is relaxation for the mind. There's all kinds of beautiful research. Today we are skimming the surface of anxiety. We're not doing a deep dive. But there's all kinds of beautiful research on the benefits for the mind of mandala drawings. So in this corner over here, we have a coloring exercise for you where you can grab one of the mandala. Mandala just simply means a circle with a design inside. And you can have students create their own mandalas. You can bring print copies. There's hundreds of them online. But um, we'll have you do the relaxation exercise with a mandalas, coloring mandalas, for just a couple minutes. And then relaxation exercise for the spirit. We really do believe that prayer changes things. It's a hallmark of Winning at Home. We are a faith-based counseling organization. So what we'd like you to do is over here on this table, in this corner, we have prayer rocks. And we would love for you to think about a student in your classroom who might be struggling with anxiety. Just write their name on that prayer rock and then spend just a minute praying for them today. Thinking about what they might be struggling with. Praying specifically if you can. And then once their name is on that prayer rock, slide it in your pocket or put it in your purse as a reminder to continue to pray for them. Um, I have three or four prayer rocks on my desk at work. And every time I see them, I'm reminded, oh, I'm... I need to pray for that person because I know they have a particular test that day. And so they can be very effective reminders. Uh, we have some decorative markers and colors, so feel free to get as creative as you want with the prayer rocks. And in that back corner over there, I believe, we have a package or container of bubbles. So for those of you who want to practice bubble breathing, you can grab a container of bubbles and practice the long inhale and then the slow exhale. Sometimes with kids who are competitive, I'll even turn that into a contest and say, let's pretend the contest is to see how many bubbles you can blow in your wand. And so they take a deep breath, they exhale. Oh, man, that was great. That was five bubbles. Let's see if we can do seven. So the goal for them is to see if they can inhale and exhale as long as they can. We have those four stations. Um, in, in our old room, we moved classrooms. In our old room, I knew exactly how many people were in there. <laughs> so I have no idea how many people are in this room. But how about if we say everyone in the entire place start with the ball exercise. And then let's do, oh, this has to be divided in thirds. So uh, maybe the first one, two, three, first five rows here. We'll have you go to the prayer rock station. Does that happen? <laughs> okay. And then the, ha the back half, how about the back half of both sides, you can go toward the bubbles. And then this group right here, the first five or six rows here, you can come and start with the mandalas. And we will rotate every 